Our reading today comes from the Gospel according to Luke as we continue our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, that you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a pleasing sacrifice unto you, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Here's the problem with sin. Where do we put it? We all think that we know where sin comes from. It's from the mouth of our foes from the actions of the evil ones or the evil one. Maybe it's systems of oppression created by the man in a dark cellar printing off $100 bills. And when we finally take a moment and stop blaming other people and we breathe and we pray, it doesn't take very long to listen to ourselves, to become very knowledgeable about our own inadequacies, which according to a lot of psychological research, we tend to like to label as mistakes instead of sins. As long as it's us, it was just a mistake. Maybe we should take time during worship for our spouses, our partners, our friends, our children to have them share with us where they think our sins come from. Or before we initiate a whole slew of relational issues. Perhaps it's just best to declare with Paul in his letter to the church in Rome, all have sinned, all have fallen short. There is no one righteous. It's a truth that serves us well, but does very little to solve the problem. 
Augustine, back in the 500s, thought that it was original, the sin of ours, conferred on us at birth, part of the human condition, just sort of passed down from Adam and Eve, and that gosh darn apple. Ethicist, ethicist Reinhold Niebuhr once quipped that, quote, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. And anyone who has ever parented, grandparented, taught children, spent time with young children, understands the efficacy of this ethos. But those same caretakers, parents, teachers, anyone who's done any amount of this work and who's done any amount of navel-gazing knows that most of the sin that we see is sin that they saw and replicated. Or as they say in faith formation circles, in general, you get what you are. But then, if that's the dark side of nurture, there's also the dark side of nature, where you get those behaviors that seem to come wildly from left field, where our kids do something and it leaves us asking, where did that kind of crazy come from? Jesus tells us a story about a father who probably asked a fairly similar question. A son who didn't want to stick around. And a brother with a strong devotion to justice. Because in the ancient Near East, the oldest sons were the primogenitors. That meant that upon the death of the father, everything went to you. If you were the younger son, in general, that meant that the older son would continue to take care of you off the land and whatever that meant for you. But, but there was this small possibility. I mean, no one ever did it, really. But the small possibility that if your father was wealthy enough, if he could sell off a chunk of this land, you could, as the youngest, ask for your inheritance. I mean, it was shameful. Shameful. I mean, no one ever did it unless you were the lowest of the low. Those are the kinds of sons that people murmured about at parties and said, well, you know what his son did. And this isn't even about selling off a piece of your 401k. This is as if someone said, you need to cut your house in two, sell half of that, and also take half of your annual salary and hand that off too. Every year. Now let me ask you, is the prodigal son's sin his fault? The fault of this crazed individual, his greed and gluttony getting in the way? Is it the fault of cosmic or mythological forces? Sin at large, the evil one, something raining down upon the prodigal? Is it the problem of the system? Systems of oppression, in this place, the marketplace, and a culture that said success is when you break out on your own, start your own business, build your own wealth. You on your own are what's important. Who's to blame for the sin of the prodigal son? Now, many, many large tomes have been written trying to figure out what sin is. Because if we don't know what it is, we don't know who to blame. And blame is very important to us. 
Augustine was sort of the Mac Daddy with a description of sin as this unending inherited curse. Aquinas comes along in the Middle Ages and says, any sin is anything against the will of God? Luther says that sin is a denial of God's word. Whenever we replace our own word instead of God's word. Calvin changes that a little bit. He says, sin is anything that's contrary to God's law. If you're someone who's trying to found a utopia city in Geneva, Switzerland, you really want to make sure that everyone's following the right law, which Calvin was trying to do. By the way, Calvin never said that we are 100% sinful and we can't do anything good, this idea of total depravity. He meant to share that every piece of humanity is tainted by sin, which is a very important connotation here. But probably the most consequential of all these thinkers was a guy named Anselm, which most of us in this room probably never heard of. But whenever you go to church and hear that Jesus died for your sins to pay a ransom, you're looking at Anselm in the face. Because Anselm was part of the medieval ages and he understood the feudal system. If you remember the feudal systems, you have the peasants who are living off the land of the lords and the nobles, right? And they were constantly working for the Lord. Thank you very much, Pastor Molly. They suffered much more than my throat is by constantly having to work for these lords in exchange for all of the production of the land coming to the Lord. And I mean all. They would provide protection, often the form of knights. So there's this system of constantly owed debt, an almost impossible system to get out of unless a massive ransom was paid on your behalf. Insert Anselm in the substitutionary atonement theory for Jesus' death, which is that Jesus pays the debt to God of your great debt to the Lord. The problem is we don't live in medieval times. Rarely does anyone die by the sake of their blood for anyone now. And sin has kind of fallen on hard times too. Progressive pastors tend not to want to preach on it, afraid it will make someone not want to come to church, or if we can just not talk about it, maybe it'll go away. Conservative pastors, on the other hand, like to use sin sometimes as a battering ram to break into your heart and to make you believe something. Of course, neither of those stereotypes is 100% true. But it is certainly true that we don't have a holistic ontology, an understanding of what sin is and what it does to us. And then there's all the modern problems with sin. According to Derek Nelson of Yale, people sometimes see sin as too pessimistic about human nature. I mean, aren't we mostly good, or don't we do a lot of good things, despite all this sin, this total depravity that Calvin talked about? Some see sin as too arbitrary. Remember that once upon a time, the underlying building block of capitalism was considered a sin. Has anybody in the past year taken out a loan with interest, given a loan with interest? Sinners, all in one of you. Usury was the sin 
outlawed by the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Of course, there was slavery, which was once thought to be not at all sinful. Eating meat on Friday, totally unlawful for hundreds of years. And at my alma mater, dancing on campus with any one of the opposite sex was, for about a century, a sin that could get you expelled from your college. Sin can sometimes be arbitrary, or maybe it's just inapplicable, at least from your own perspective. My actions don't really affect anyone else out there. It's my own junk, my own mistakes, remember? There's no way that buying a house in Chevy Chase could possibly have anything to do with the rising cost and rising rents and the rising everything so that people are systematically segregated and brought out of resource-rich communities in D.C. That doesn't apply to me. But in just the way you probably receive that message, sin can also appear judgmental. Anyone who's telling me what I'm doing wrong needs to first look at the log in their own eye. So it would be nicer to just wipe away sins. But then life keeps happening in our own hearts, in our families, in our workplaces, and sometimes in the schools where our children attend. Like this week, when the Washington Post wrote about the list that appeared in early March in Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. According to Samantha Schmidt, Yasmin Bahani had just walked into her third period health class when her friend asked her if she had seen the list. Quote, there's a list of the girls' names, her friend Nikki said, and we are ranked. Bebahani didn't want to see the list. She didn't want to know whether she was on it. She had spent the last four years recovering from an eating disorder, working hard to avoid comparing herself with others. But by her sixth period class on Monday in March at BCC High School, a text message appeared on her phone with a screenshot of that list, typed out on an iPhone's notes app. It included the names of 18 girls at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School in the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, 18 girls ranked and rated on the basis of their looks from 5.5 to 9.4 with decimal places to the 100th place. There, with a number beside it, was Bay Bahani's name. The girls felt violated, objectified by classmates that they considered their friends. They felt uncomfortable getting up to go to the bathroom, worried that the boys might be scanning them and editing their decimal points, said Lee, one of the other girls on the list. So whose fault is the list? Was it the boy or boys who made it? Unable to quelch, squelch their inner sin? Was it sin, the evil one, a force reckoning upon them? Was it the system of patriarchy? Who's to blame for the sin of this list? The sin of the prodigal, our sin. 
luckily for fans of sin scholarship, and there are some wild fans out there in biblical scholarship, a new book came out last year called The Emergence of Sin, The Cosmic Tyrant in Romans. You see, sin has always been having this battle back and forth between the person who did it and the system that holds it. And then, until recent times, an always sort of mythological battle against the force of sin. In recent times, as we've grown more empirical, more scientific, we kind of want to wash away sin as a mythological force. But the author, Matthew Crossman suggests that understanding sin as a tyrant, as a superhuman tyrant, is actually helpful for us reclaiming the doctrine and knowing where to go. He suggests, in a very convoluted line, that sin operates as a collective epistemic subject, depending ontologically on the participation of its constituencies, but nevertheless functioning as a distinct locus of epistemic activity. Got it? In other words, all sin, every single one of us. But there is a way in which our sins together form a system. It's a system that we created on our own and a system that also rules over us. And the bigger the system comes, the harder it is to break out of it. So there's a self-reinforcing mechanism. This is called emergence theory for those of you who want to go find modern day philosophers and really dive in at the end of today's sermon. But emergence theory brings together this sort of individual versus collective diatribe that we've been having and says both are true and both are the problem. And as Lou said from the earth stewards, if it's not for one, the many will continue. As Crossman suggests, this fits well with sin in the image of a slave master, which is how Paul often talks about it in Romans. Sin is ours to claim. Sin belongs to us all. And sin starts by calling it that. The girls at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School understood. And here was the response from the boy who created the list. He said, it was quite intense being so directly confronted in front of so many people for so long. Because this boy had been asked to go to a session with the other 80 international baccalaureate students at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. The meeting was supposed to last for 45 minutes and it lasted for two and a half hours. As other girls in the class shared story after story, not just a feeling objectified by this list, but by walking down the street and getting catcalled, by being followed by men in trucks. The student continued suggesting that he remembered coming up with the list. He said he never meant for it to hurt anyone, but he took responsibility for what he said was a haphazard, stupid decision. Quote, when you have a culture where it's just normal to talk about that, I guess making a list about it doesn't seem like such a terrible thing to do because you're 
used to discussing it. You hearing the system piece here? I recognize that I'm in a position in this world where generally I have privilege. And where I have to admire this kid is where it comes to the personal. I'm a white guy at a very rich high school. It's easy for me to lose sight of the consequences of my actions and kind of feel like I'm above something. He said, while he regrets making the list, he was grateful that the girls spoke up. Quote, it's just a different time and things really do need the change. This memory is not going to leave me anytime soon. To be clear, the real heroes of this story are the girls, the women, who stepped up in the face of this sin and said no more. When they heard that the administration had brought out a very small discipline to this boy, something like 40 students stepped into the administrative office and demanded justice. Jones, the school principal, said she had been proud to see the students take the lead on these meetings since the list emerged. Quote, it takes bravery, it takes being vulnerable, it takes a sense of forgiveness, she said. So once the individual's sin was confronted and the system was talked about, and these girls said, no longer should we have to go to a school where we are worried about being berated and belittled, action was taking place. They had that meeting, and now there are classes being, uh, younger classes being held where the uh, senior boy and a senior girl are coming and talking about patriarchy and these systems and what these individual students can do about it. There's going to be a pop-up museum where a student is talking about the history of oppression and what high schoolers can do to end it. Once sin was called a sin, they were able to step out of the mire and to go above it. My friends, here is the good news about sin. Sin is penultimate. Sin is not the last word, because as soon as we say sin, we remember God. As soon as we say sin, we remember God. If it's a mistake, it's just on me and something that can change. But when it's a sin, we remember to whom we belong, to whom we have erred, the greater impact of that action. And then we can look others in the face and say, as the prodigal did, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. Our brief statement of faith that came out in 1990 talks about God this way. It says, like a mother who will not forsake her nursing child, like a father who runs to welcome the prodigal home, God is faithful still. My friends, sinners one and all, Martin Luther suggests that we should sin boldly, but believe even more boldly in the power of Christ. My friends, the good news of the gospel is that we can say sin. When we say it, we remember the God 
He calls us back home. May you know this good father. May you know this mother of love. May you call sin what it is in your own life and seek out the reconciliation of the kingdom. Amen.